By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hi, welcome to another episode of Moody's Talks Media podcast about credit dynamics in U.S. public finance. I'm your host, Nick Samuels from Moody's U.S. public finance team in New York. 2023 marks Muniland's third year, and as we look ahead to the challenges cities face, we're pleased to be joined by our first guest from outside Moody's, New York City controller Brad Lander. As the city's chief budget watchdog and accountability officer, Brad's role is critical to the city's credit strength and provides a unique vantage point over the types of challenges many cities grapple with. Brad is the custodian of New York City's five pension funds, reviews the fiscal and economic assumptions in the budget, manages the city's cash, and issues New York City's bonds, along with the mayor's office of management and budget. In that latter role, late last year, Brad helped oversee the city's first ever issuance of social bonds to raise funds to help address New York City's affordable housing shortage, dovetailing with the rise in ESG-focused investing. He's also pushed to grow the city's rainy day reserves, partly to boost credit quality. Brad Lander, welcome to Muniland. Thank you so much, Nick. Really appreciate the chance to talk to you. And I should note before we start that Brad's views are his own and not those of Moody's, and New York City has a credit rating by Moody's Investor Service. Brad, you've been in your job for a little over a year now. It's no doubt been very busy as the city is still working through the economic and fiscal fallout of the pandemic. But let's start with debt. The city issues bonds frequently and for all sorts of purposes. And in the fall, as I mentioned, it issued $400 million in bonds specifically for affordable housing and marketed it as a social bond. So tell us why and why housing affordability is an issue for New York City that a credit analyst like me should pay attention to. Mm, absolutely. You know, first I'll just say I have gotten so uh, excited about municipal finance in general. I, you know, I was in the city council a dozen years and financing our infrastructure, whether that's our schools or our water system or our affordable housing or our parks. You know, I think most New Yorkers, of course, don't understand every single day how much the systems they rely on. Um, are financed by the city's debt obligations and how much we owe to municipal finance, both to pay attention to the city's fiscal health, but also to finance the infrastructure that makes it possible for our city to function. Um, And I don't know that we'll get everyone to focus on it by talking to them about social bonds, but it is one exciting thing that I think makes sense to people. And the fact that we have a desperate affordable housing crisis Um, And that you could be a Google engineer who decided to move here from Austin, or you could be a migrant from Venezuela who walked here for eight weeks through the jungle, and you're excited to be in New York City, but boy, finding affordable housing is challenging. Um, And that's why the city subsidizing and investing in affordable housing is so critical, uh, and why we were so excited that our first social bond, $400 billion of taxable fixed rate bonds, or for dedicated for affordable housing in New York City. So tell us a little bit more about how that issue will actually try to help encourage more development of affordable housing. So the city's got a great, a broad affordable housing program. Um, and that involves 
trying to build new housing all throughout the city. So we, you know, we have rezonings that help us develop new housing. When I was in the city council, uh, I championed a rezoning to enable 8,000 new housing units in the Gowanus area of Brooklyn, near where, near where I live. In that case, about 5,000 of those units will be market rate and about 3,000 of those units will be affordable. Uh, but all around the city, we're trying to invest. And when we're able to do more deeply affordable housing, housing for folks who are working, you know, something like a minimum wage job, they're a prep cook in a restaurant or somebody who's delivering that food uh, as a deliverista, you know, those folks are making something near minimum wage and you cannot afford market rate housing in New York City. And, you know, if you're lucky and you're already here and your parents were living in public housing, um, you know, you might have problematic conditions to deal with, but at least you have housing you can afford. But if you're looking for it, boy, it is so hard to find. So the city through its Department of Housing Preservation and Development put city subsidy into new affordable housing. And in this case, it had three great programs. One we call ELLA, extremely low income, one for seniors, the SARA, senior affordable rental, and one supportive housing, uh, the supportive housing loan program that's designed to help folks who are homeless move into supportive housing that helps them succeed and and so in this case, we had over 3,000 units of affordable housing through those three programs. Um, and the, the subordinate debt, what essentially functions as the subsidy, um, that's part of the city's general obligation debt issuance. And this is the first time we bundled them together. And we said, here's over 3,000 units of affordable housing that you can count on the city's credit uh, if you're an investor to pay back through our normal general obligation. But if you're looking to balance your portfolio and more and more, we see investors who are because you care about your ESG, environmental, social and governance uh, portfolio, then you can invest in this social bond in our affordable housing. You'll get a, a, a solid, great return, you know, protected by the city's uh, credit and backed by our general obligation but also one that lets you be an investor in these 3,000 units of affordable housing um, all throughout New York City, a lot in Brooklyn, a lot in the Bronx, some in Queens and Manhattan. Okay. So like you just said, selling the bonds as social bonds was really a way to try to attract investors to the sale. How was the sale received by the market? Did it broaden the city's market access to investors who normally don't buy New York City bonds? Uh, so I'm happy to say that it was, you know, really well subscribed. And we really do believe a, a, a meaningful chunk of that is because folks were looking for social bonds. So this was 400 million of taxable fixed rate bonds as part of a broader um, general obligation bond sale on September 20th. Total sale was 1.35 billion. 400 million of that in these taxable fixed rate bonds. Um, and in terms of the orders we got, you know, um, for the taxable social bonds, we received indications of interest totaling 1.88 billion, so 4.7 times uh, the bonds we offered. And of those orders, more than 380 million were from 10 investors who were identified as being entered for the social bonds specifically. Um, this is the first time we did it, so we, we can't compare it to prior issuance. But I think it's pretty clear that we expanded interest from folks who were looking specifically to buy social bonds. And yeah, that's great for us. We're putting a lot of debt out in the field. And so attracting new buyers um, you know, really works well for us, especially at this time. Now, 
3,000 new housing units sounds like a lot, but you know, New York City has a reputation for, for being a very high cost location. So how much of a dent does this really put into the problem? How much more work does this fit? Well, well, this is a great question. I think you have to look at it both ways. I mean, on the one hand, you really do have to think about, you know, these 3,000 families and they really are this housing that I was mentioning, it, you know, sometimes people say, well, how affordable is it? This is deeply affordable housing to families at what's called 30 and 40 and 50% of area median income. So those are folks making, you know, 30,000, $40,000 a year, you know, maybe for a family of three or four, that really is somebody working a low wage job that's got a couple of kids. And there's just no way they can find, you know, the the, the market rate units, the median hit $5,000 during the pandemic. And even in places like the Bronx, the market for new for rental units is just out of reach. So first, you know, 3,000 families who are working class folks doing things we absolutely need in this city. Those are, you know, um, healthcare workers who are maybe providing home care to seniors or working as patient care reps in the hospital. Those are folks in hospitality and retail, so many jobs we need. So 3,000 families, that's probably 10,000 people, including kids who are going to our public schools, so that's big. Um, what do we need to do to make the market have a little more slack so that we don't have a broad affordable housing crisis? This is just one piece of that because that has to include a lot of new uh, construction, uh, bringing a lot more market rate units online, a broad range of affordable housing options, including homeownership as well as rentals. We have a lot of rent stabilized units that we recently discovered are being warehoused and we have to get those back online. Um, the whole New York City Housing Authority, which is about 475,000 units, has not had the maintenance it needs. So there's a lot of work to do there. So, you know, these 3,000 units are just one part of that strategy. But what I will say is they are all new units. These were not renovations. These were the building of new units that didn't exist before, targeted with the deepest levels of affordability to low-income and working-class families who the market is just not producing for otherwise. Let's shift gears just slightly, because one of the other issues you've been very focused on is New York City's budget reserves. And from a credit perspective, reserve levels for the city have been a credit challenge. They're lower than other cities that can keep big gap basis balances on hand. And last spring, you recommended that the city's relatively new revenue stabilization fund, or rainy day fund, should grow to be about 16% of tax revenue, about something like $12 billion. And more recently, you've recommended some rules under which the city should be able to draw on those reserves. So from your perspective as controller, why is building a bigger, um, more traditional budget reserve important? There are really two reasons, uh, one of which is what our investors are looking at and the municipal finance community is looking at which is we can't be a strong city that has access to the credit markets to invest in all of the things that we critically need, our schools, our affordable housing, our parks, our water system, our roads, um, if our credit is not viewed as strong. And so that is important. At the same time, I don't think it's only that. You know, For me, it's a form of social insurance to say, look, uh, when a downturn comes, and you know the majority of economists think one is likely in the next year, we know that will impact our revenues. 
And we don't want to have to lay off teachers or social workers or, you know, close our libraries, all, you know, for a day a week, all the kinds of things that you wind up having to do in hard times if you have not saved for a rainy day. And so it is both to have good credit and as a form of social insurance to protect you from having to cut services that vulnerable folks need in the hardest times when a recession or an economic downturn shifts. That's always hard to do for all the reasons that it's hard for folks to save individually. It's not easy for the city to do either. Paying attention to the long term is a challenge. That's why we would like a more formulaic rainy day fund. Our team in the spring put out this great proposal that says you should put away half the amount that you're, uh, we chose to focus on non-property tax revenues because our property tax, Kanahara, tends to be pretty stable. Um, non-property tax revenues are a little more volatile. And in a good year, when they are up over what they've been in past years, that means you really have an opportunity to save. And so we say take half the overage of non-property taxes in any given year compared to the average of the preceding five. You can use half for new investments for new spending, put half of it in that rainy day fund until it gets up to 16%. That would mean in a recession, uh, you could go about three years uh, replacing up to 5% of your revenue, that would make such a big difference, of course, in your ability to keep meeting your credit obligations, but also to keep meeting those social obligations. New York is now about just shy of 10%, which is stronger than we've been a lot of past years. That's not the 16% we would, we would like to have. And now we've just come out with a proposal for how to make sure it wouldn't get drawn down all at once, because if the, if the economy does turn down, we need to make sure we spread it out for all the same reasons you want to save it in the first place. Okay. And and last question to you, and it's really about the city's economy. Um, it certainly hasn't gone back to normal compared to what was happening in 2019 and pre-pandemic. Remote and hybrid work really seem to have taken a hold. I've become a full-time remote worker in this period. Business travel, which is important to the city, doesn't seem to have come back yet and might be delayed as the economy stays down. Financial firms uh, face a lot of weakness. And recently, some of the tech firms that have been so important to new sources of job growth in the city have announced large layoffs. So New York City has had to transform itself many times before. Where do you see the city's economy headed? Let me tell you the upside first. There are things we've got to pay attention to, real risks and challenges. But, you know, we're at now 97% of pre-pandemic jobs, you know, we're back to. Um, and while we aren't back for retail or hospitality or restaurants, actually both tech and healthcare are above their pre-pandemic levels. So you've seen a lot of job growth. Um, we looked at something, a lot of that job growth has been in the outer boroughs. You know, that's a shift in some ways of, the kinds of businesses that maybe were servicing midtown restaurants, shoeshine, um, uh, um, dry cleaning, uh, that more of those things have opened in the outer boroughs. But we've also seen, I think there was more than 5,000 businesses that opened last year that didn't even have a characterization on the normal NAICS uh, job standard, uh, job categories chart. So we're seeing a moment of real churn 
Um, but that inc that includes some things closing down as they did during the pandemic, but a lot of new things opening up as well. And you can feel a very generative energy in a lot of neighborhoods. And you're right, we're not back to where we were in 2019. But if you think about what it felt like in the depths of 2020, when there was a real reason for existential anxiety, would people want to live or work or ride the subway or do business in New York City again? The answer to that is yes. And that's why housing costs are so high. There's definitely more work from home, but that's a lot of people that still want to be in the New York metro area and love the city. Um, I was talking to the folks at Google and they, during the pandemic, allowed employees to uh, live in any city with a big Google presence, uh, Google office presence, and more than a thousand Google employees who were elsewhere moved to New York during the pandemic. And while we got to find affordable housing, um, that's a, that's a real sign of broad strength in the economy. So do we need to look at what to do with excess midtown office space? We absolutely do. And some of that can be conversion to residential and some of that can be conversion to biotech labs and life sciences. Um, and some of that can be just more creative uses of ground floor retail and kind of energizing Midtown. Um, but I guess I think that if we keep the basics strong, which is the good connection back to municipal finance, if we invest in the things that make the city thrive and people, you know, it's a good place for people's kids to go to school and where they know it's going to be safe and clean. Um, people are going to keep wanting to be here for the energy we have. And they will come up with the new innovative businesses of tomorrow, whether those are more on the personal service side, whether those are more on the life sciences or tech side. Um, so I, I guess my answer here is like, if we focus on the basics of delivering a well-run, inclusive, diverse city, um, I don't think we're going to have to reinvent the economy in the way we did when manufacturing fled. I think creative folks across sectors will keep generating value for years to come. Okay. Brad Lander, thanks so much for joining us. That's all for now from Uniland. I'm Nick Samuels. Join us the second Thursday of every month. We'll talk with you then. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.